if you have ever dived, is my son and I. Ah, I'm not going to tell you which one's which. If you figure that out, you figure that out. I'm going to tell you. I was with my son one day, and a man said, "Oh, is that your grandson?" I beat him up. Shouldn't joke about that. No, 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 no. This is my, this is my son. My son and I like to dive, scuba dive. We don't scuba dive nearly enough, but we like to. We've dived in some pretty interesting places. It's nice to be down under the water because when you get under the water, you're in a whole new world. Got any divers here tonight? Some divers? All right, got some divers. Smart people. It's like there's just another world. You get below the surface of the water and it just opens up. Things that you don't see anywhere unless you're reading books or, or, or watching documentaries. It's just fantastic. All the varied kinds of fish, the beautiful colors, the strange shapes sometimes. Some are very curious. Some won't let you get anywhere near them. They're just wonderful. And you get down there and you say, oh, God made this. Look what I've been missing. Look what I, I don't see when I'm on the top side of the earth. This is really fantastic down there. These guys went swimming by us. They got to within about three meters of us, uh, black-tipped reef sharks. So they were, well, I told you three meters. If, you, if you're bilingual, that's about nine and a half feet. Uh, magnificent. I was just really glad they weren't hungry. They just came swimming on by, about nine or ten of them. And we were just staying cool, taking photographs. This fella here, uh, we were less than a meter away from that. It's a good thing he has very bad eyesight. He was out hunting for food. Fascinating. He was hunting with, with a fish by his side. He'd scare the, the, the whatever out of a little cave or a crevice, and he'd take a munch on it, and whatever was left over, the fish would eat. Really fascinating to see them out hunting as a pair. Interesting. These guys, eels, sand eels, I think. You get close to them, and whoop, they just disappear right down into their holes. Fun. I'd never seen anything like this in my life, not up close. And of course, you get to see little rays like this one and big rays like this one. Wingspan of about uh, five plus meters. And this, that one, that very one there went swimming right over, like flying right over the top of us, close enough to touch, although of course we didn't bother touching him. My favorite, these guys, turtles. I just love them. That's supposed to be a video playing right now, but it's not playing, and that's too bad. Nope, it's not going to play either. That's a little guy. They, I just love them. When I dive, if I see a turtle, I've seen enough. If I saw nothing but a turtle, I'd be like, yeah, it's been a great day. It's another world down there. It's like visiting another country. You know, you go to India, and it's interesting when you go and visit the Taj Mahal. You walk in, you can't see it, and then you walk in, you walk in, you turn the corner, poof, there it is. It's one of those absolutely magnificent structures that when you see it, you don't say, that's a little disappointing. You say, oh, that's just awesome. It's like the Colosseum in Rome or the Temple Mount, the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem. You see these things and you say, wow, it's just fantastic to discover places that you haven't been before. Discoveries are good. That's why people like James Cook, discoverers are lauded and lionized. They're remembered, Cook Strait and Mount Cook in New Zealand and probably a bunch of Cook things over here in Australia, named after James Cook. Tasmania was named after? What was Tasman's middle name? Can anybody tell me Abel Tasman's middle name? I can tell you, but I won't. 
You can Google it and find Don't Google it now. Google it later. <laughs> Abel Tasman, we remember the explorers. We remember the discoverers because there's just something special about discovery. A man in England made a fascinating discovery. He had a five and a half inch tall cup. He thought it was a brass cup. His, uh, his grandfather was what you call a rag and bone man, like a, a, a junk dealer. And he, uh, this cup was handed down from grandpa to the, to the dad and from dad to the son, and he kept it in a box under his bed. And one day he looked at it, he said, I think that's brass. So he sent it to the British Museum, and they got back to him and said, no, it's not brass, um, it's gold, and it's from Persia, 4th or 5th century BC, and it's worth at least 150,000 Australian dollars. That was a discovery. You see, the cup was there. They thought it was worth nothing, didn't stop to consider the actual value, and they made a great discovery, a discovery that was worth lots. Now, this discovery was really interesting. In California, a man and his wife were walking on their property when he noticed something sticking up out of the ground. They were on a farm kind of a thing, a rural setting. He grabbed a stick, and he went over, and he prodded it, and the stick went right inside what ended up being a rusty old tin can. So he retrieved a shovel and dug up these tin cans and discovered there were numerous cans, eight of them, and they held 1,427 gold coins worth in Australian money about $12.5 million. How about that? Wouldn't you like to make a discovery like that? Oh, sure you would. Tonight you're going to make one like that. You're going to make a discovery even more valuable than $12.5 million. And I'm not kidding. I mean it with all my heart. When you come to the Bible, you need to keep your eyes open because you'll see things. Things will be revealed to you. You'll make discoveries, priceless discoveries, life-changing discoveries that were just sitting there waiting for you to discover them. And what I want to share with you tonight is bound up together with what the Bible refers to as the everlasting gospel, the final gospel message to go to the world. Look at this. Then John writes, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel to preach to them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And the angel says, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. And we studied that a few nights ago. The hour of his judgment has come and, and now do what? And what? Tell me. Worship him. Worship him who did what? Who made what? Heaven, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. So the final gospel message contains an injunction to worship God. Not just worship God, but to worship the creator God. How important do you think that is? Because if you look in Revelation chapter 13, one chapter before, that chapter says, and all the world wondered after the beast. And then it says, and they worshiped the dragon who gave power to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who was like unto the beast and who was able to make war with him. The issue in earth's last days is a question of worship. And there's going to be a line drawn right down. Well, it's probably over here. But there's going to be a line between the saved and the lost. And it's going to hinge on the question of worship. Remember, we discussed this early. Uh, starting in Genesis, the running like a thread all the way through the Bible and down to the book of Revelation is this question of worship. In the wilderness, Satan even had the temerity to come to Jesus and say, I'll give it all to you if only you will bow down and what? 
Worship me, that's what he said. He's after the worship of the world. He's going to get it. For the most part, all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, the Bible says, except for those whose names are written in the book of life. And so there's a call to worship. God wants our whole heart. I want to tell you, the tendency, the temptation is to claim the name of Jesus, name the name of Jesus without really yielding your heart to Jesus. Christianity is not something that plays out merely between the ears. It plays out in the life. God is calling for us to yield, to surrender, to surrender. We get small, God gets big. We pray like Jesus prayed on the cross. Oh, not my will, but your will be done. That's how God is God. He's the God of your entire life. I've got a decision. What's your will? I'm coming to, I've come to a fork in the road. You tell me which way I go. There's a big question. I really want to honor you with this thing. And in the last days, in earth's final hours, there was a call, a global call to worship God as the creator. Now, remember this. In the beginning, God did what? created the heavens and the earth. He is our maker. He is God over all. He's the creator. The Bible says in the beginning of John, the gospel of John, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Who is this speaking about? Jesus. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were what by him? Made by him. How's that happening? I didn't realize I had the little red button going. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so Jesus is the maker. He is the creator. This is what the Bible says. And you know, if you go back just not very far, pretty well everybody agreed with that. 100 years ago, 200 years ago, there was no question about creation and creatorship. Except you go back to about the 1830s and a young scientist named Charles Darwin got on board the Beagle and sailed to the Galapagos Islands and he looked at some stuff and he said, hey, wait a minute. And Darwin, of course, did not originate the idea, the theory of evolution, but he did champion the idea of natural selection. And so owing to evolution and maybe skepticism and some other things, the generally accepted view of God as the creator has been diminished. It has been damaged. But the heart of the book of Revelation leads us to make a discovery, an amazing, a fantastic, a blessed discovery, one that speaks of the love of God. It shows us how interested God is in us. It shows that God wants to know us on a very deep level. It shows that God wants for his heart and our heart to be bound up together. That's what God wants. The Bible tells us that in the beginning God created and he created the earth in six days. Darwin will say, no, not so much. Natural selection, evolution, eons of time. I wouldn't pick a fight with anybody who believes this. Intelligent people, some believe this. Thinking people, many thinking people believe what Darwin taught. But if you come to the Bible, you find out the Bible narrative is really very clear and plainly stated. On the first creation day, God said, let there be light. And there was light each day for five successive days. God created, adding to the beauty of the world and preparing this place for our original grandparents. For he would later say, let us make man in our image after our likeness. According to the Bible, we are not the result of evolutionary processes. I'm kind of glad about that. Evolution would teach that in the beginning there was a bang, boom. There was nothing, 
and then there was something. No one's ever tried to explain how nothing comes, uh, how something comes out of nothing. And that's illogical, but nevertheless. So there was nothing, and then there was a bang, and then there was something, and randomly life formed, and so therefore you are random. You are the result of a random process. No thought went into you. It would, uh, it would suggest to us that every one of us here tonight is an accident. That's not good. And it's not biblical either. Instead, the Bible account is that God got down, you know, he got down in the dirt. Got, he, got, he got dirt on his knees and he got some dirt together and he formed a man. And then when he formed this man and the man was inanimate, this is where it gets intimate. I don't mean that in a creepy way. God got down close enough to breathe into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. He came into being. This is a God who comes close, a God who cares, a God who loves, a God who feels, a God who wants nothing more than to be one with you. He believes you are worth something. He purpose made you. He intended for you to be here. It doesn't matter what people talk about, the, how you came into the world, whether you were planned or unplanned. You were planned by God. Welcomed by God, you're valuable in the sight of God, you matter to God, you are loved by God, God has a place in heaven prepared for you, he wants to spend eternity with you in the beginning God created. The Bible says in the book of Psalms, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. And so on day two, God made the sky and the sea. On day three, the land and the vegetation. On day four, the sun, the moon, and the stars. On day five, he made sea creatures and birds. And on day six, God made animals and people. He made Adam and Eve on day six of creation week. But even though God had made all of that, everything from light uh, animals and human beings. God was not yet done because there was a seventh day of creation week and the Bible says to us in chapter 2 and verse 2 of the book of Genesis, and on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made and God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. God wasn't tired, but he had finished the actual work of actually creating, and now he carved out of the rock of time a day that would be a memorial of creation, a day that would be a memorial of his power to create and therefore his power to recreate. On the seventh day, God made and gave the seventh day Sabbath. Remember, it was given at creation. It was given to be an eternal sign of that wonderful creative power of God. It was a reminder that God made you in the image of God. You were made for an eternal purpose. God liked the day so much, he blessed the day. He set it apart from every other day. The Bible says he sanctified it. And when something is sanctified, it is set apart for a holy purpose, a reminder forever of who God is and what he made us to be. First day, light. Second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, grandma and grandpa. And seventh day, the seventh day Sabbath. And it's fascinating. The only reason we have a seven-day week today, no matter who says what, is because in the beginning God created. 
Now, a, day, a year is 365 days, six hours and 11 minutes long, because that's how long it takes the earth to get around the sun. Not sun to get around the earth, right? Earth to get around the sun, that's right. And a month, a moonth, actually, it's from the word moon, that's got to do with the timing of the earth and the moon and this and that. Where did we get a seven-day week from? Had nothing to do with the planets, the sun, the moon, and the stars, except that in the beginning, God made them. And every seven days we say, yep, we are remembering again that in the beginning, God what? Blessed the day. That's what he did. He sanctified the day. That's what he did also. And he rested on the day. That's what God did. He blessed sanctified, rested. He said, this day is a sign forever of my power to create and to recreate. It is a sign, God said, of my infinite love. I made these people and I will take care of them. And when it came to the days of the week, there's only one that God blessed, sanctified, and rested on, and that was the seventh day of the week. At Mount Sinai, what did God do? He wrote the Ten Commandments with his own finger on tables of stone, on stone, because they were to endure forever. We don't want to kill and lie and, and covet and all of these things because we want to be uh, uh, our character to be more like the character of God. We want our character to be as the character of God. We want God to remake us in his image. And so we don't want to go into these places that will lead us. Listen, breaking the commandments isn't just a matter of breaking God's law. It's a matter of breaking God's heart. And we don't want to do that, not at all. God spoke a little differently about the fourth commandment. He didn't say thou shalt or thou shalt not. He started this one by saying, remember. And by the way, it's clear that the Ten Commandments were in existence before this time because he wouldn't ask you to remember something you'd never heard about. He says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. He says, in it you shall do no work. You, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the cattle, your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. It wasn't new. God said, remember, Rem remember, think back. This is something that you had from creation. Now, I want you to see something here. It would not be the least bit surprising if someone were to say, oh, hold on a minute. The Sabbath was something God made for the Jews. But if you were to say that, you're forgetting what we just looked at. Here's the testimony of the Bible itself. It says the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. It wasn't made for Jews. It wasn't made for Papua New Guineans only. It wasn't made for El Salvadorans only. It wasn't made for Canadians only. It wasn't made for, for Nuaeans only. It wasn't made for Jews only. This is the Sabbath, not of any people group. It is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. It can't be mine. It can't be yours. It's God's. It is God's property. God made it, instituted it, and gave it as a gift to the world. The Sabbath was created, interestingly enough, 2,000 years before the existence of the first Jew. It cannot possibly be a Jewish institution. It was given to people originally who were not Jews. But let's hasten on with this uh, passage. Genesis 20 verse 11 says, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. 
Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Ezekiel really echoes this where he says, God speaking, moreover, I also gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them so that they might know that I'm the Lord who sanctifies them. I want you to think about how beautiful this is. Remember, broken, lost, sinful, we need to be remade. Who can remake us? I cannot remake you. Uh, people try and remake each other, it's true, but it's, it's, it's doomed to fail. I can't remake you, you cannot remake me. The sinner who cries out to God realizes only God can help her, can, can help him. And when the Bible says that the Sabbath is a sign of God's power to sanctify. You know when David prayed in the Psalms, he didn't pray and say, evolve in me a clean heart, O God. He said, I need you to create in me a clean heart. Paul said, anyone who comes to Jesus is a new creature. That includes you. Anyone who comes to Jesus is a new creature. All things have passed away. All things have become new. We are new creations. How's that possible? Because God recreates us. How's that possible? Because he's the creator. How do you know? Well, back here early in the Bible, God said, I'm giving you a reminder. I'm giving you a memorial of my creative power. And that is the seventh day. It's a sign of his creatorship and his power to recreate us. So when Jesus came along and lived on the earth as a man, he related to the Sabbath in a certain way. This is Luke 4, verse 16, and it says, So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. Now, so the Sabbath, what was Jesus doing? Worshipping. Where was he worshipping? At church. Of course, the church was called a synagogue. Jesus went to the synagogue and participated in worship services. Absolutely, he remembered the Sabbath day and kept it holy. And it was Jesus who created all things. We read that earlier in John. And it was Jesus who gave the law on Sinai. So the creator, the lawgiver, when he was on the earth, lived in harmony with his law. And if you wondered which day the seventh day really is, you say, well, of course, I want to do that. That's one of the commandments of God. This is a sign of God's power and authority over my life. We want that. The Bible tells us which day of the week it is. This man went to Pilate, Joseph of Arimathea, we are talking about. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down wrapped it in linen and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. That day was the, what day? It was a preparation day and the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. And the next verse says this. Now, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. The Bible doesn't leave you to guess on stuff like this. God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You say, which day? What day? What day is that? I mean, Muslims will, will reverence Friday. That's the significant day of the week for them. Jews and some Christians, Saturday. Majority of Christians, Sunday. What am I to think? Well, you're not to think. 
You can go to the Bible and deduce and pray and study and learn and find out what God thinks, you see. What does God think? So consider this. Jesus was taken down from the cross. He died on the cross on the preparation day. And then they came down to see his body and he had been raised from the dead on the first day. And the day in between was the Sabbath. Now, pretty easy. Easter was not very long ago. And at Easter, we remember the death of Jesus on the cross on good what? Good Friday. And we recognize his resurrection on Easter Sunday. The day between Friday and Sunday is what day? There you go. Saturday. That's the seventh day of the week. It's the Sabbath according to the commandment. If you just went to a dictionary and looked it up, it would tell you that Saturday is the seventh day of the week. It would tell you that Sunday is the first day of the week. I would say check out a calendar. But you know modern calendars have started switching this up, starting with Monday and ending on Sunday. That is a recent innovation. But the seventh day of the week, the Sabbath according to the commandment, that would be Saturday. What a discovery. Now the dictionary bears that out. It's interesting. This is really interesting. You, you go to Italy... The, day, uh, the, the name of the day of the week that we call Saturday is Sabato. In Kiswahili in Africa, in the Kiswahili language in Africa, uh, the word for Saturday, Sabato. In Russian, Subota. In Polish, Sobota. In uh, Arabic, Al-Sabt. Interesting, isn't it? So many, many, many languages of the world, the word for Saturday is simply Sabbath. In fact, there is a language in Ghana in West Africa where the word for Saturday translates as God's day and the word for Sunday, you know what the word is? White man's day. Isn't that interesting? Because, you know, in Africa, they kept the Sabbath in many parts of Africa for hundreds and hundreds of years, even all the way down to the time of the Reformation. But then the white man came, the missionaries came, and said, oh, no, you're getting it all wrong. You've got to switch days. They'd been perfectly content following what the Bible says for hundreds and hundreds of years. The missionaries doing the work of God straightened them out. Actually miseducated them, and I think we understand that. Now, if you ever ask yourself the question, what about the stars in the sky? Or what about the, what about the planets going backwards or the sun going backwards in the time of Joshua? It's really interesting. Even if you contacted astronomers at the, these high-end astronomical institutes, astronomy institutes, not astronomical, astronomy institutes, they will tell you time has never been lost. People will ask, and someone's going to ask me here. They will. They'll say, but how do we know that the day we call Saturday is the day they called Saturday and Jesus' day? I mean, it's, it's a f fair question, I suppose. How do we know that the day we call Wednesday today is, is, was Wednesday 4,000 years ago? You don't worry about what the, names, what, the, what the names of the days are. We're just worried about the order in which, in which they come. You call them whatever you want. God says keep the seventh day. And there's no question that the seventh day today is the same as the seventh day in Jesus' day because we've had a whole nation of Jews keeping that same seventh day every week. They surely never lost track of time. So time hasn't been lost and the weekly cycle has never been corrupted or compromised. You can be glad about that and you can be sure about that. And remember Jesus said, don't think that I've come to change the law or the prophets. I didn't come to change 
but to fulfill. I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, Jesus said, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. This was important to God. He wrote it down with his own finger. He wrote it on stone, indicating it wasn't to pass away like something that would get blown away that had been written in the dust. These are referred to not as the 10 suggestions, but as the 10 commandments. God wants you to know this is the pathway he wants us to walk in. When he says don't kill, he means it. When he says don't steal, you're like, yeah, I agree with that. People shouldn't steal. Honor your father and your mother. Every parent says to the kids, hey, remember what God says. And when God said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, we say, yeah, that's, that's just as important as the other nine commandments, a memorial of creation. Australia Day comes around on the same date every year. What date? Is what? 26th of January. I knew that. 26th of January. Could you celebrate Australia Day on the 27th? I mean, you could, right? You could have your friends over for a barbie on the 27th or the 28th, or the 25th, I mean you could, but what day is Australia Day? 26th, you see, you, you, you can't change that, it's just, it's baked in, it just is what it is. Now we know that Jesus kept the seven day Sabbath, clearly he did, and someone will say, well of course he did, he was a Jew, all right, no problem there. So the question becomes, did it change ever? Did it change ever? Now, we've made an amazing discovery tonight, an incredible discovery, I might say. And that is that in the Bible, something has been neglected by a lot of people. It's been forgotten by a lot of people. I don't mean anyone had malice in their heart when they forgot this, but it's been forgotten by a lot of people. And it's one of the commandments of God, and God gives it to us as a blessing. The word Sabbath means rest. You know, when surveys are done, when, when research is done, asking people if they're stressed or not, the results don't come back with people saying, I just don't have enough to do. People are stressed. God says, I could see that coming. They've given you a day. We're consumed with business matters and earning and this and that and achieving and working. God says, I saw that coming. They've given you a day. It's a release valve. It's time out. God says, I know what time you have to get up to go to work and I know how long they keep you there and you don't have hardly any time and you've got a busy family and all of these things going on. I saw that coming. Gave you a day. Yes, you're going to take time for God every day, a little time, hopefully not too little, and you get down to the Sabbath and, ah, I've got a day. I've got a day, nothing intruding, nothing getting in the way. My relationship with God can be fed, built, not a matter of running to church, watching the... You know, my wife had an aunt, God rest her soul, and she had a purse, a funny old purse, and it had a clock on the outside of the purse, on the outside. So you walk around, there's a clock, an actual working clock. And when the pastor in her church would go a little longer than she thought was necessary, she'd hold the purse up and point to the clock. <laughs> Isn't that fun? You ought to be finished by now, preacher. I hope he ignored her, but... Uh, Think she was hard to ignore. On the Sabbath, you don't have to watch the clock so much, you know. You've got a day. God saw this coming. He said, we're going to really grow this relationship here. I'll give you a day. I'll, I'll, I'll give you time. So did it change? Did the early Christians change this? The book of Acts is explicit. 
Then Paul, as his custom was, as his what was? Uh, give me another word for custom. Tradition. Okay, give me another one. Habit. That'll work. Then Paul, as his custom or tradition or habit was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. So he was Paul on the Sabbath studying the Bible, teaching the Bible, and worshiping God. Acts 16, verse 13. This is in Philippi, not a Jewish settlement. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Oh, what day was that? The Sabbath day. The Sabbath day. Again, they're in a Gentile place. The Bible said when the Jews went out of the synagogue, all these Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now, if there'd been a change, then suddenly Wednesday was the new Sabbath day then they would have said, oh, we want to hear more about this. We want to hear more about this next Wednesday. If it had been changed to Sunday, let's say, they would have said, fantastic, we'll see you next Sunday to hear more about this. But no, that's not what occurred, not at all. Verse 44 says, same setting, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. So when you get into the book of Acts, the Bible record is very clear. It's explicit. There was no change to this. Isn't it interesting? And the vast majority of people in the world just don't know. Or if they know, they're forgetting about it or ignoring it or neglecting it. And it's like those coins, 1,427 of them, gold. They're in rusty cans buried in the ground. Someone stuck them there and forgot about them or put them there and didn't tell somebody else where they might find them. And there was a discovery made in this neglected Bible teaching, which has prophetic implications for earth's last days, is there in the Bible, kind of getting a little rusty in some ways as it's neglected and left, but it is there. The Sabbath actually is mentioned in the New Testament 50 times or so, more, yet no mention is made of a change. In fact, in fact, Jesus was really clear in telling us that New Testament Christians will embrace the seventh-day Sabbath. He was clear about this. Because you'll get folks who say, oh, no, 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 that's not taught in the New Testament. What if Jesus taught it? Let's have a look at this. Jesus was speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Do you know when the year of the destruction of Jerusalem? 70 AD, that's right. 70 AD, Jesus died in 31 AD. So four decades, let's call it 40 years after Jesus died, Jesus speaks to this time and he says, but woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babies in those days and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath day. So he's looking forward to the year 70 AD and he's saying, you don't want this destruction to happen on the Sabbath because you all will be like sitting ducks. You don't want to be, oh, we, we're committed to kind of being in one place and we weren't planning on running anywhere today. And look at us dressed for church. No, Jesus said pray didn't happen on the Sabbath. What was he saying? 39 years after I die, you all will still be keeping the seventh-day Sabbath. It was very clearly very important to Jesus. He was explicit about this. What happened then when Jesus died on the cross? Oh, something happened. Remember, we looked last time, you find two great divisions in the law of God. There's the moral law, the Ten Commandments, 
And then there's the ceremonial law, you could call it the law of Moses. They were both given by God, but for very different purposes. One was ordinances and types and shadows, and one was the unchangeable, lasting forever, Ten Commandments. And you want them to last forever, you surely do. And yet when Jesus died on the cross, something very definitely happened. The sanctuary services came to an end. The ceremonial law was no longer to be kept. No more animal sacrifices. Why don't we, keep, why don't we sacrifice animals now? Uh, not only because it would be inappropriate in society, but because when Jesus died on the cross, the veil in the temple split in two from top to bottom. That veil separating the holy place from the most holy place where once the Shekinah glory, token of God's visible presence was. And it was God saying, no more sacrifices, no more temple services. We are done with that. It is over. It is gone. Ten commandments though, no other gods before me. That's not up for grabs. Adultery, it's not up for grabs. Dishonoring your parents, mm -mm. still important to God. Stealing, lying, coveting, still important to God. So if they are still important to God, and we all believe that they are, then it's just logical that the fourth commandment would still be important to God as well. You can't have nine commandments that are important, but somehow you took an eraser out and and, and rubbed out the fourth commandment. No, we can't do that. We're consistent here, and the commandments of God are still important to God. Now, I need to uh, go through something with you because there's a question. We know what day it is, but when do you keep the Sabbath? According to the Bible, the Sabbath is to be kept from even to even, or from evening to evening, or as Mark 1 and verse 32 makes clear, from sunset to sunset. So it shifts a little bit. In the winter it's earlier, in the summer it's later, it's always 24 hours long. From sunset to sunset, that's when the Sabbath is to be kept. So that means Friday night when the sun sets, Sabbath has begun. Saturday night when the sun sets, Sabbath has ended. Now here's what's really interesting. We've seen that the Sabbath was kept, well, given in the Garden of Eden, kept by Abraham, kept by Moses, kept by Jesus, kept by the early church, you might be surprised to know that we're going to keep it in heaven. Uh, the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 66, for as the new heavens and the new earth which I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. New heavens, new earth, future, still future. And he went on to say this, and it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, that's from month to month, and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. We will even keep the Sabbath in the earth made new long after we go to heaven. The prayer is on earth as it is in heaven. And you know if we are going to worship the Creator throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity, we ought to be worshiping him here. We want God's will to be done in our life. Not because we're trying to work our way to heaven. Not because we're trying to curry favor with the Almighty. But because we love God. And why do we love God? We love God because he first loved us. Jesus died on the cross. That's got to do something in your heart. Jesus laid down. He said, no, right, there's my hand. Right there, boys. Here's, another, here's the next one. Probably helped get his feet in position. Drove the spike through. He... He laid down his life for us. 
He lived and died so that we can live and we don't have to die eternally. We recognize God as God because he is the creator. It's what separates God from false gods. In the beginning he created and the Sabbath is a memorial, a special memorial of God's creative power. God said you need this. It says in the Bible the Sabbath was made for humanity, made for us. You know, I remember asking some ladies, I was actually speaking at a church I'd never been to. Maybe it was Christmas time or something like that, that general time of the year, I think it was. And uh, I don't know how the conversation got around, but it got around to gifts. And there were three or four women there, and I said to them, What's the best gift you were ever given? Best gift. And the first one that was clear she was going to go first, she thought and she said, you know, when my son was just little, he made me this little thing. And I've kept it 25 years now. It's the most precious possession I have. I remember when my daughter was... 14 years old and she made something for me and she poured her heart into it and she these women I mean we, we talked later they'd been given some nice gifts man they'd been given cars and they'd been given I mean travel and, and, and fancy stuff what was the gift that mattered most to them something that someone had made someone who loved them made something for them Someone who loves you made something for you. He made the sun and the moon and the stars and the fish and the birds and the animals and the light and the this and the that. And then he said, you know what? Now that I've made Adam and Eve, interesting, eh? On day six, he makes Adam and Eve. And then next thing he does is he carves out a special day and he says, this is for you. Imagine that. This is for you. Where, where, I, where I live, um, there are these great big department stores, and if you go to one of those stores on Boxing Day, you find a line of people a mile long at customer service. And what are they doing? They've got their receipt, and they've got the gift that they don't want. That's an ugly tie. I don't want that tie. I do not need more socks. I don't want those socks. People are taking gifts back. And they're making sure, you know, you'll see people standing in line. Mm. <laughs> making sure the gift giver doesn't see them taking the gift back. Because there's something a little bit ungrateful about taking a gift back. The Sabbath was made for you by someone who loves you. Something a little bit ungrateful about taking that back and, yeah, I don't want that. Can I switch that out for something in my size? Can I change that for something a different color? Can I just have the money? Something a little ungrateful about that. You wouldn't take one of God's best gifts and say, you know, Lord, I don't think I really want that. God wants to enhance our lives. Imagine that. If you're a workaholic, God says, take a day. If your family, if you've got a busy family and everybody's running in a thousand different directions, God says, take a day became very special to us. You know, when the kids are little, that's a wonderful time. You just tell them what to do, and they're like, okay, we'll do it. Wear this, sure. Eat this, 
got it. Well, you know, then they start thinking for themselves, you know. You kind of get to the place where you're saying, oh, you know, I, I suggest you consider wearing this. And they might say yes, and they might say, ah, you know, because you, you, you don't, you can't boss them around when they get bigger. And my son's gone off to university, you know, and he doesn't live in the house anymore, but he lives kind of nearby. Sabbath? Ah, oh, man, what a day. We're together. Together. It's, t- it's time, time with each other. I, you, you couldn't pay me enough money to, 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 to switch this out for something else. You just couldn't do it. And it's time with God. We take our devotional time every day, at least we should, you know. But on the Sabbath, you, you, you can kind of sweep away all those other thoughts that are trying to land in you. you no, know, I don't want to think about that right now. I don't need to deal with business right now. I don't need to go to the office right now. It's worship time. It's time with God. It's special. Man, imagine that. Imagine if you've been getting by on a, on a hurried one-hour period a week. Learning that God has a day, 24 hours. You know, it's, it's, it's not uncommon for people to go, oh, that's a long time. What do we do with all that time? Well, if it was God's idea, you can be certain God will encourage you and, and, and lead you in how to fill that time up for his glory and for your benefit. This was God's idea, quality time. Quality time uninterrupted by regular work and secular activities made holy by the Creator so we can receive more of His presence, more of His presence, and grow in His love. I know I've said this already, but I want to say it again. Think of what this says about God. What does this say about God when He says, I have a day for you? Hey, uh, I, I know it's been great. You've been coming to my house for an hour a week. But you know what? I want you to come to my house, and then when you're done, I'm going to come to your house. We're going to spend the day together, the day together. You know something? When I'm done here in Melbourne, I, I, I don't have nearly enough time. I'm going to zoom over to New Zealand and spend less than 48 hours with my mother. It's going to be maybe a day and a half. And it's going to be so good to see her. I don't see her very much. And she's, I mean, I'm sorry, but she's the most wonderful mother that ever walked the earth. Oh, um, Maybe your mother might be somewhere up there too. I mean, she's wonderful. I get about this year, four days with her this year, this year. Next year, I don't know, I'll have to, have to up that. Often it's, it's a few more, you know, maybe it's two weeks. But when I have so little time with my mother, I'm not going to say, eh, you know, mom, I'm going to cut that down from two days to one day when I'm home. Or maybe I'll stop in for 20 minutes. What would that say to mum when mum says, we've got a day together. We've got a day and a half together. And I say, you know what, mum? How's 15 minutes? How does that work? What's the message I'm sending to my mother? Mum, it's just not that special. Mum, I really don't care that much. Oh, I'll come breezing in. Here's some flowers, mum. Here's some chocolates, mum. Here's some socks, mum. Don't take them back to Kmart. Here's some socks, mum. See your mum, kiss her on the cheek and leave. She'd be like, what is this all about? We had a day planned. Let me ask you how you've been treating the day God has planned. God's looking forward to spending a day with you this week. Again, you spend time with him every day, but God says, I've got a day. 
What are you doing? Breezing in. Hey, God, breezing out. Got to go. And God must be thinking, ah, maybe next week. Ah, maybe next week. This says that God wants to spend time. What a wonderful God. God wants to hear about what's on your heart. God wants you to hear about what's on his heart. God wants you to grow under the shadow of his wings. What a God. What a great God to carve out a day a week. Amen. What a wonderful God. What a loving God. What a good God. He says this day, the Sabbath day, it's a gift from me to you. Now, I don't want you thinking, oh, he's saying that somehow the fourth commandment is more important than all the others. Oh, no, I'm not saying that. It's no more important than the others. But what I am saying, and I want you to hear this really clearly, it's no less important than the others. A lot of us in our Bibles, we've got the nine commandments. It's like you came along with a black marker and inked out the fourth one. Here's the nine. I'm in agreement with the nine. Oh, no, God wants better for you than that, much better for you than that. And you remember that James wrote that if you keep the whole law, but you offend in one point, you're guilty of all. Wow. And Jesus said in John 14 and verse 15, if you really love me, something wonderful is going to happen. If you love me, you're going to do what? You're going to keep my commandments. That's right. God wants to add to your experience with him. He wants to add. We are to grow. You know what some people say? Oh, I'm fine how I am. I don't want that. I don't want any changes. I don't want anything new. Oh, yes, you do. Oh, no, I'm happy with the way things are. No, you're not. Show me your washing machine. You know, when I was a kid, my mother had an old agitator washing machine with a ringer. I remember the ringer because my arm went through the ringer one day. Stupid of me, I know. And then when we were able to, and these newfangled things came out on the market, and when mum and dad had enough money, mum kicked that thing like, like that and got a new one because it was an improvement. It was better than what she had, you know? There are not many people who still have a phone with a curly cord attached to the wall, and that's all they have. Not many people. Most people now, even if you have a home phone, you've got one you carry around with you. you, you I don't want anything new. No, thank you. Yes, of course you do. Sure, you, there's a reason you're not driving a Model T Ford around, because you found there's a better way. You're not riding a horse here and home each night. You've discovered that there's been an improvement made on that. And so even in your Christian experience where you say, I, I, that's new, but I see God wants something more for me. You grab hold of it. You say, thank God. And of course, the devil going to come after you. Oh, how are you going to do that? What are people going to think? What will people say? And you just say, you know what? I don't have time for that. What I have time for is saying to God, lead me in the way that I should go. Can you say amen to that? Sure, we want to embrace new stuff when it's from God. We absolutely do. God wants us to progress spiritually. Sometimes he shows us new things because he wants more for us. We are happier when we grow in the grace of God and we follow the grace of God. And we discover this amazing gift, the seventh-day Sabbath, magnificent. In 1975, a man who lived in Turin in the northern part of Italy stopped at a police station on his way home from work. He stopped at the police station because they were having an auction. From time to time, they would auction items that had been left on the city's trains. 
And so he went to this auction, not knowing whether there'd be anything, not knowing if there'd be anything that he wanted. But when he got there, he spotted a couple of paintings. He said, oh, they look nice. He spoke to the auctioneer or the police or somebody about them, and they said, you don't want that. Those are worthless. He said, no, I like them. I like them. He thought to himself, they would look good above the table in the kitchen. The table where I sit to eat my breakfast. I would like to see those two paintings on the wall above that table. And so he get into this thing and he starts to bid on the paintings, but there was another man who liked them. And so the bidding started up very low. It's 1975 too. And it went up and up and up and up and up and up and up. And finally the other guy dropped out because it got way too high. $30. $30. Maybe, maybe $40, $30, $40. And he paid the equivalent of 30 or 40 Australian dollars for these two paintings. And he took them home and he said to his wife, look what I got. And she said, oh, they look nice. What are you going to do with them? He said, they'll look good right there. And she said, okay. And they put the paintings above the kitchen table. And they hung there for years, 30, 35, 40 years. Until one day the man's son came home from university where he was taking an art appreciation class. And he said, Dad, those paintings, where'd you get them? He said, you know the story, boy. I bought them at the police station at an auction. I paid 40 Australian dollars for them. He said, Dad, one of those things looks familiar to me. What do you mean? So the boy went and did some research and he made a discovery. He discovered that his father had bought a painting by the French painter Pierre Bonnard and one by uh, Gauguin, the other, the master, master painter. And one of them was painted in 1889, and I don't know when the other one was painted. And so we went to the police and they said, well, the owners who lost them or had them stolen or whatever got paid out insurance money and they have no heirs so the paintings are yours would you like to hear the rest of the story he paid 30 to 40 Australian dollars for them and they are worth in today's money 51.5 million Dollars. What an amazing thing. $50 million plus. You see, they were there all along, on the wall, in his kitchen. Can you imagine? They could have been stolen. They could have been damaged. They could have been burned up in a fire. Anything could have happened. But there they were, and he saw them every day, but never realized how precious they were. Never realized. Saw them every day, and didn't know what their value really was. Saw them every day, and had no inkling as to their true worth. You look into the Bible, and you will find the seventh-day Sabbath. And you might see it, and you might read about it, and you might acknowledge it, but you might have had no real appreciation of its true worth. And now we discover this is God's eternal sign given by God to all of humanity for all time as a sign of God's love for us, as a sign of God's creatorship, and as a sign of God's power not only to make us but to 
remake us. We've got something precious in the Bible. We've got something precious in the seven-day Sabbath. And don't make the mistake of failing to recognize that you've got something precious in Jesus. It was Jesus who came into this earth and lived the life that we could never live. It was Jesus who was nailed to an old rugged cross. It was Jesus who gave his life for you. Jesus who died so that you might live. It's interesting tonight, Jesus isn't asking any of us to die for him in the literal sense. But he is asking us to live for him. We love him because he first loved us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And given all God has given to us, the least we can do is allow God to have our heart. 